I mean, the first premise is that no matter how challenging, learning how to value our planet in ways that can move people and governments alike to act in the best interests of humanity and the planet and all of the myriad ecosystems is really what the underpinning tenet is of natural prosperity and the well-being economy. I'm going to kind of bind those two together. Um, I think it's also what we're going to need if we're going to overcome the climate change and the biodiversity emergencies. I think sitting on our hands and doing small things is just not going to cut it. But I also see an opportunity to address one of the pernicious aspects of society, which is social inequity. So I'm really trying to see how we can bring those all together. So over these six lectures, what I want to do is look in depth at the principles of natural philosophy. I want to look at the meaning, um, what they look like in terms of well-being. And I'm going to also then think about how we're doing this recalibration. And for that, we need parameters. We need some data. We need some information that's going to be convincing. So I will also talk about the calculus. So it's the calculus of natural capital, um, both as an economic metaphor for the limited stocks of resources that we have, both living and non-living. But I'm also going to talk about it as a motivation to bring some of that invisible value of nature into everyday conversation. Now, it's a phrase that some people don't like, but I'm going to utilise it in a way which hopefully will bring others to the table who potentially wouldn't be interested in, in nature or anything. So I'm going to use language a lot through the discussions around this philosophy because language for me is going to be one of the turnkeys to change people's hearts and minds. So across the world, we're observing that these global-scale phenomena like the COVID pandemic, wildfires, droughts, floods storms have really got a potential to shift our everyday view of the natural world. What it's doing for many people is underlining the dependencies that we have and all of the interlinkages. I'm sure many of you saw interviews from the Australian sort of back um, from the bush and people being interviewed who I know for a fact are climate deniers but confronting that reality as their house is burnt to a crisp is it's really, I mean, it's, it's very emotional. But I've been talking to Australian farmers now pretty much every morning, every day for the last four months. And there is a deep, deep, deep-seated unease that something has to change. And fundamentally, a lot of them are farmers. So they're really looking now to how they can shift their business, stay in business, but actually do something to avert what is otherwise going to be them leaving their farms and actually not having a future. So, of course, it's very, it's very uh, self-motivated, but they're reaching out now to look at, well, first of all, why the government isn't doing various things, but also how they can reach out across the world. And they're reaching to other farmers in the US, here in the UK, and so on. So it's a really good time to introduce these kinds of thinking. Unfortunately, the economic system doesn't quite seem to respond in the same way, um, and I would say that uh, it really overlooks a lot of the needs of humanity and the workings of the planet. It does it in a very, very kind of superficial way, but what it's not really doing is addressing those unsustainable dependencies that we have in our global trading systems, our consumption patterns, and just literally the over-exploitation of resources. So altogether, we're kind of driving on the wrong side of the, of the highway. And what I'm going to try and propose for us is a, a natural prosperity, this way of thinking, which is going to define an economy in which everything, the policies, the solutions and the measures, right from the get-go, are designed to deliver human well-being and they're going to be geared towards positive, regenerative environmental outcomes. I'm going to focus a lot on outcomes and I think that's something that we need to also put our attention to. Measuring things is okay, but we need to focus on outcomes. Now, we're not going to hear about this is all you know, fairyland and off into the future. We have countries who have committed themselves to doing this. There's New Zealand, Iceland, Scotland, Finland, Wales. Now, notice they're all quite small countries. And that says something about how we're going to achieve this because in every case where that conversation is happening, there's a very close relationship between governance, government, and what is happening at the community level. So power of voice is an extremely important part of, the, of this natural prosperity concept. So 
I'm going to talk about everyday lives. It might sound a bit banal and a bit vernacular, but I think unless, unless you get it, what it's going to mean for all of you, then there's no point in me talking about theoretical abstract ideas because it just doesn't connect. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about you know, farmers, about people living in the urban area, entrepreneurs. You know, what does it mean for people in their everyday lives? And particularly those who are young and potentially the most vulnerable because at the end of the day, there's no point in having a society where we leave half of the people behind us. So that's really, really vital. And I really want to think about how we can turn the tide on not just unsustainable use of nature, but actually we're, we're literally destroying nature. So two of, the, of these pillars that we're going to talk about today is natural capital, but in its broadest sense, and the well-being economy, and how do they sort of come together. What I do think, though, is we get back to the ideas of design. So essentially, I'm going to be talking a lot about what are the design principles that we need to put into effect, and have we seen them in any sense before elsewhere? And the answer is yes. So I'm going to use a phrase. Um, one of my students is here, I hope. Yes. <laughs> um, so Adrian Plomteau, actually, both of my, two of my students are here. So Ying Wang is here also. She's been working on plastics. Um, so I have, I'm going to quote Adrian in the sense that I want to use this word frugal, but I'm going to use it in a slightly different way than he's been using it, which is I think that through the natural prosperity, we can create a sense of local abundance, this sense of well-being and abundance locally, while still living in a globally frugal world. And, and how is that possible? Well, it's because we are misdirecting our attention and we're thinking that abundance comes from the global prospects of trade, overlooking, in fact, how much frugality, how much abundance there is locally. So it's the balance between what we're doing locally, creating that sense of well-being, but actually really constraining and keeping some of that guidance that keeps us within the planetary boundaries. And that's really one of the overarching pictures. So even if we're busy living in an urban environment, essentially we are surrounded all the time by other species of plants, of animals, of fungi, microbes. They're basically living alongside us. Uh, and they're essentially keeping us alive and well. You may not realise it, but they're helping us to breathe. They're pollinating the crops. They're providing us with clean air, with water and food. So there's a lot of invisible helpers out there doing things. When we know more about them, we realise that these living organisms can give us a sense not only of our locality, but also they do connect us to the vast biosphere that we live in. Now, one of the challenges we have is that COVID brought around a sort of a sense in which ecological thinking has bubbled up to the surface. And people have connected it to eating more healthily, to doing more exercise. And we can see it. If you go to bookshops, you go and read articles, and wherever we are, we're seeing that nature is much more apparent in, in books, in poetry, in films, in art, in music. And the fact that we need and rely on nature has become more kind of evident in people's conversations. So when I have, a, I have a web intelligence system and I look at the language that people are using in their social media, in their Twitter, and all of these different conversations, actually there's a lot more about nature and about the environment that we saw pre-COVID. It's quite extraordinary. So, you know, there's about a 20% uplift in the numbers of times that words relating to the environment are being used. So that's, that's already quite encouraging, and it's sort of below the parapet, but you can, we can certainly detect it. However, the fact that someone realises they rely on nature to survive doesn't necessarily mean that their understanding will motivate them or affect their motivation to go out and safeguard it. And that's really our challenge. So we hear the words, we kind of get it, we're quite rational, we think, but that emotional link to nature is what is essentially missing for, for many. So... This is, in a sense, why we need a new philosophy to bridge the gap between what I'm considering to be the efforts that we have today, which are irreconcilable with those of the planet's non-human species. We literally don't regard them as being part of, the, part of the equation. However, for people living in the rural areas and across the developing world, I would say that knowledge about nature is absolutely high. Um, but it's very localised. Often it's literally as far as you can see. And that linking to a particular place means that the knowledge that is gathered and gained, certainly afforded at birth and then sort of curated through a lifetime, 
is often about slow processes of change. And you know, successive generations pick that up. They capture the incremental alterations in the local environment. And then this builds up a sense of changelessness. So from my own experience uh, with the Maasai, what I've seen is things are shifting. You know, the rainfall periods are shifting. The drought is there. But it got to a point this year where for the first time they've produced a new almanac. And the almanac is, you know, like it's a picture gallery of what you do each time of the year. And it's literally all shifted by about a month and a half. So the collective wisdom of the elders has figured, oh, you know, something is definitely happening. We better tell everybody. And because many people don't read and write, we give it to people in pictures. So this is the time when you go and bring your cattle here. This is when you do this. This is when you do that. So there are mechanisms, even amongst traditional peoples, that are absolutely bang up to date. So if you were to go to the meteorological office, let's say in Kenya, and say what's happening, they'll tell you, oh yeah, the seasons have shifted by about six weeks. So there's a kind of interesting congruence between the sensing of the environment and the numerical calculations that are going on. And I think this is where I see that natural prosperity can really help us because it's a sense of creating um, an understanding of what's happening locally alongside a collective global, what I would call an overindulgence, and, and somehow we need to bring um, some sense of, of um, balance between the two so that we don't, in the end, transgress the planetary limits. The question is, are we willing to do it? And that's really, in a sense, what I want to now look at, because when we talk about words like frugal, that's a real turn-off for most people because they all think we're going to be eating bread and water. Lovely food, by the way, but anyway, it's all going to be downhill from here. But I want to kind of give this idea that the frugality that I'm talking about, which goes with the planetary boundaries, that tells us there are constraints at the planetary level, in a sense shouldn't touch us other than that we monitor them. If we do our job well, those are the things that should be done almost by default, but not where we have to do enormous swings to the economy to, to self-correct. Now, we're a long way away from that. So, um, you know, I have no sense that, that this is going to happen overnight. But that's kind of where our destination has to be, where, broadly speaking, the planet is understood deeply enough, but where locally we can actually create livelihoods and abundance for, for, for all. So one of the things, of course, when you, when you sort of put a you know, big brash statement up, like new philosophy, is that you're not going to do it from a blank sheet of paper. And so there have been many, many people who've written just fantastic books and, and ideas. And, you know, I've had the privilege of knowing a lot of them, working with them, and so on. And, you know, if I run through the gallery of, of, uh, of, of these uh, wonderful people, you've got people like Richard Wilkinson and, and Kate Pickett, who wrote The Spirit Level. They've written another one since, but very important book about sort of the, the inner processes and what inequality does to you. Um, of course, we have uh, the whole, whole horde of economists who've, in a sense, moved over into this kind of thinking, starting with Herman Daly a long, long time ago with Bob Costanza, but then really getting into people like Joseph Stiglitz, Marita Sen, and Jean-Paul um, Fituzzi, who've been really talking about how we deal with resources in a, in a very different way compared to the, um, the sort of GDP thinking. And then on a legal side, People like Cormac uh, Cullinan, who's talked about wild law, where law for nature takes its own right. It's very much the Kasonic traditions from traditional people. People like Michael Marmot, who've been talking about status and what that means for our health, and, and how, in a sense, belonging to the local knitting club is actually much more important than having £50,000 in the bank if you want to live a long time. So there's all these kind of inconsistencies in the way our economic model is running. And yet if you put human well-being at the core of it, actually it makes a lot of sense. So these writings have led me to the point where I can begin to understand that the, the, the biggest problem that we sort of had, although it wasn't and it shouldn't be seen as a problem uh, per se, is the thinking that went along with industrialization, because in a way, what that did was dissolve a lot of the ties of rural communities, pastoral traditions, along with, and this is important, the languages, the dialects, the vernacular, the way that we describe the place where we live. And of course, natural philosophy, 
really gained currency, and it's why we have the Royal Society. In fact, the Gresham, Gresham College actually was instrumental in helping the Royal Society get off the ground and, and sort of get going, very important. So th the way that we've taken things forward over these three, 400 years has really been a, a, a mechanical philosophy of the world, as opposed to what Goethe and, and Hegel and others have written about. So this mechanical idea in a way has encouraged us, it's sort of galvanized technical, technological improvements that have, in a sense, asked for new knowledge, but it's always new knowledge to do something to have authority over how the natural world is operating. Now, these are well understood ideas and principles and so on. And we could talk about needing to feed people, needing to clothe and house and so on. So many of those things wouldn't have happened easily if we hadn't been able to make technologies available worldwide. But we're in a different epoch now. We've done enormous damage to the planet. And so we have to figure out a way of, of redressing that, but in a very positive sense where we, we take everyone with us. And so one of the things that I want to speak to is what it means to have an understanding of your birthplace, of the languages that were there maybe, maybe only 10, 20, 30 years ago, but have maybe disappeared out of use. Because the language isn't just about place naming. It's actually got cultural and emotional connections. So, you know, take 20 seconds and think of a place and then describe it in your head. A place that makes you feel very positive about the environment. Okay, now, imagine you were on a sea cliff. So how many words would you have for that? Well, cliff, near to the sea, chalk, you know, you could start to imagine it. But literally, for the people who are living, say, <clears throat> down in, uh, in Kent or other places, some of the older fishermen, they have vast numbers of names that talk about the crevices and the way that the, the chalk is eroding and so on. And so it's an emotional attachment as well as actually describing what is happening. And that, in a sense, that sense of wonderment is where I think... Unfortunately, we have, we have lost our way because when we talk about views of nature, it's always ascribed to you know, environmental movements, people who are sort of ecologists and so on. But actually in, in the Middle Ages and not so long ago, everybody, everybody had a, a linguistic link to nature, to the place, to their birthplace. And industrialization has in a way taken that, taken that out of our language um, repertoire. But once we start to put that back in, we regain what Weber has called the enchantment. You know, he talks about the disenchantment, about you know, the rise of rationalism. We can make logical decisions without really listening and understanding the environment that's around us. But in, in a way, that's led us down a path where we have things like standing reserves. So Heidegger talked about this in the 50s, and he was talking about energy, and in a way, we created our own kind of monster because we got really efficient at creating energy reserves. What we didn't do, we didn't talk to you about how you're going to use it. We sort of said, well, you can use it however you like. So, okay, that's not, a really, that's not quite such a good thing to do. You know, you create all these reserves and then you unleash, literally, anybody can do anything with it. But it's at a cost because that standing reserve isn't necessarily feeding back into the resources that have been used to create it, whether it's a coal mine or, or whatever. So the, we've, we've sort of brought with us in the, in the sort of natural philosophy the mechanics, the understanding, the, the idea that we can create these reserves, that we've got logic, we've got rationalism and so on. And nature is just literally sitting outside of it. So these views of nature as we currently see them, means that we have put apart traditional societies as some kind of primitive groups. You know, they don't really, they really know, they can't read, they can't write. So, mm. But if you listen to them and if you live with them, you see that it's an entire continuum. And that continuum is actually what we should try to introduce once again back into the way that we live on planet Earth. So the distinction between artificial and not artificial it, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist amongst many traditional peoples. Naturalism, however, sees this separation all the time. And interesting, when you go to Japan, you find a, a kind of weird hybrid here because domestication <coughs> is about taking a bit of wild nature, but you bring 
all of the language with it. So, for example, the cherry blossoms, which are very iconic, they were an artifact of a planting regime. But what happened was the cherry blossom has brought an enormous emotional attachment to land and to trees and to forests. So they didn't subjugate. They essentially brought it and enhanced it because it was something that the Japanese peoples really felt very strongly and very emotionally attached to. So you can do mechanical things in the landscape, but the motivation for it is probably one of the things that's been missing up until now. So as we're actually embedding sort of natural prosperity as potentially the values-based approach in this post-COVID recovery and the recalibration, what I'm proposing is that we need to look at a fundamental redesign of how our relationship sits with the natural world. And what I would suggest is that we need to think about nature outside of this use-value framework which we have. And instead, we have to become much more expert in analysing what nature, instead of, in, instead of saying what can it do for us, actually what is nature doing to us because we're part of nature. So understanding that it's nature doing things to us rather than just how can we use it. That's really the kind of sleight of hand that I'm, that I'm talking about. Now in, um, I think probably in the last few months, I'm not quite sure when he came out, there was a, a fantastic writer called Robert McFarlane. I don't know if any of you have read him. He's written a book called Landmarks. And Landmarks is where he documents the use of language to do more than just give place names. And this particular picture is from an incredibly important ceremony in the Maasai tribe, which happened this year. Regardless of COVID, it happened. Um, and Effectively, it was so important that people and the elders made a decision to have this the ceremony. So this is where the two sides of the clan, the right and the left, the age classes, they come together. And you can see that most of these gentlemen are in their 40s. But there are some who are in their late 20s. So they bring the two sides of the clan together, uh, of the class together, and they make that age group. And then they all essentially graduate. So they become the next set of elders. And the reason they do that was because there's this whole group of young people who need to take their place in society. So by moving everybody on, it opens up the space for the next generation to take their place, to go in the bush, to learn how to take care of people, and to be able to get married, because you can't get married until you've actually moved on up. So it's a very, very strict way of, of operating. It's got lots of flexibility in it. And I was utterly, utterly amazed. So the, the men go off for four months into this special camp and they eat very, very special foods and they do very clearly things associated with nature, with wildlife and so on. And I, I sat down with my, my husband, who's a chief, one of the chiefs in the Maasai, and we calculated how many additional words there are in Ma just to describe this process there are 1,280 words associated with this process. And I would say at least three quarters of them have to do with the trees, the, the land, what you're doing in the land, where you're sitting, and how you build the houses, and so on. And so you can see how the language is, in, is enriched both to and from nature. It literally, it's, it's a way in which this rite of passage will happen. And this is what Robert McFarlane points out in his book. It's a, it's a beautiful book. He also talks about it in many other places. For example, um, there's a great anthropologist called Keith Basso, who works in um, Western Arizona with the Apache. And he says, um, this is what Basso says, he says, the Apache understand how powerfully language constructs the human relation to place. And as such, as a such they possess a modest capacity for wonder and delight at the large tasks that small words can be made to perform. So every small word carries enormous um, significance. And so one of the things about a philosophy is that we have to recreate a language, or we have to create a language, we have to rediscover the language that we're going to use in conversations. So we have all of the, the, the right repertoire of getting people together, participatory processes, creating new institutions. But when you've got everybody in the room, what is the language that we're going to use to talk to each other? And I know that when I go into rooms and I talk to senior people and I start using words that have to do with the environment, 
there's, there has been in the past a lot of embarrassment. Oh, green stuff, oh, trees, oh, don't know about that. Now you can't stop them. You know, which trees are we planting? My 10 million trees, what, what, what species are we going to plant? And so on. So the conversation is, is changing. But then, of course, they don't know which trees to plant because they have no idea about which trees to plant where. So slowly, slowly, things will happen. But what you realise is that this conversation needs to be contextualised. So we can talk about trees in the kind of, in the round, but if you want to go and make an impact and you want to talk about carbon sequestration, well, you better be planting the right tree in the right place. And so to have that conversation, you need to know essentially who you're talking to, which community, what you're going to do and why you're doing it. And that's the missing piece, the enormous, what I would call, diversity of landscapes, materials, and, and the way that societies have created products out of those landscapes to support human survival is, is really what we need to recapture. And we need to get that kind of universal idea that diversity, unlike what we've said in the traditions of the industrialised world, diversity is our strength, it is not our weakness. Now, if you're an ecologist, you know that by default. You know that diversity in ecosystems gives resilience. But if you think about our technological world, a lot of it is about getting rid of all of that diversity and trying to create products that work absolutely on the nose. We understand how they're going to work. You push the button and this thing happens. I mean, you'd be a bit surprised if you turned your radio on and something else happened and something else came out of it, wouldn't you? Yes, that wouldn't be very good. So in a sense, I'm not saying we're going to start creating weird and wonderful things. We should be. But the idea is that we need to carry over the idea of diversity being absolutely core to our survival. And that holds for people. Diversity amongst people, diversity in nature. We're all one and the same. No species stands still. So why would we ever think that we should stand still as a human population? All right? We need diversity. We need diversity of ideas as well. So assuming, in a sense, that we've got ourselves into a conversation around prosperity, and we're seeing that it's linked to nature, and we'll, we'll kind of get to that, how that would happen. When I sit down and, and my colleagues in, in uh, the university and in all the different groups I work around the world, when we sit down with communities and we say to them, what does prosperity mean to you? Um, they come up with a whole, whole, whole raft of ideas, right? Forget GDP, forget all of that. It's rarely money in the bank. It's usually community, 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 who I know, networks. It's health, it's education, it's a clean environment. So there's a sort of top scoring, but health is always there. So this is just a little word cloud of, of you know, the common words that were coming as we had these conversations. <clears throat> health is really, really core to all of this. And so when we... I mean, it's inevitable, isn't it, with the COVID pandemic, that we've seen that long periods of time you know, spent away from nature are going to be literally detrimental to our health, but to our mental health as well as our physical health. And this is where some research comes forward, which is very useful, but we don't have nearly enough of it, which shows that time spent in nature, <clears throat> it really does mitigate things like allergies, it reduces all-cause respiratory, cardiovascular and cancer mortality. So there's many, many things that just even 30 minutes in nature will do to address our basic health. And, you know, really don't, don't overlook this. But it turns out that the presence, the accessibility and the proximity to green spaces also does a huge amount. Not quite as much as walking around for 30 minutes in, in you know, green spaces. And the challenge is that we don't really understand the role of biodiversity in those green spaces. So we understand green, good, and we kind of understand the, the, the physical processes. But what we don't really understand is, you know, is it 50 shades of green that's really making us feel much better? This is, this is something that, you know, is still an open research question. So what, that's, what that kind of says to me is that when we bring up the idea of the underlying calculus of natural prosperity, I see that there are three areas that we need to build. So there's the language that will describe these. There's the actual numerics and calculus that we'll use to put these on the table. And then there's the social and political motivation that will you know, bring this all together. But I feel that this is the, these, are the sort of, these are the three things that we need to address in a fundamentally different way, but given that worldview that I've just described. 
So we do want consistency of measurement, no doubt about it, but what I'm suggesting to you is that unlike the last 100 or so years of where we've gone out and measured things consistently, exactly measuring things in exactly the same way, what I'm saying here is that what gets measured will be context-dependent. Now, a lot of natural scientists would, they would shudder at this, but I've spent my life with natural scientists and realised that you can only get so far measuring pH all over the world. And you can only get so far measuring temperature all over the world. But because when it really comes down to it, to understand an ecosystem and our role and how we function with it, you need to know so much more about all the interactions, the species, and so on. So there's another group who do case studies and do a lot of experiments and so on. And they're always confounded when they can't find consistency from one place to another. But I'm saying, why are we bothering? I'm sorry, you know, I'm not throwing all of science out. But in fact, it's the context that matters. It's highly, highly important that that originality, that context originality is what we capture when we go out to, to create in our minds what is a livable, a livable setting. So the calculus of natural prosperity, if we start out with ecological health and the social dynamics, brings us almost immediately and quickly to... Um, the idea of the planetary boundaries. This is a slightly busy slide, but um, it's only because I wanted to, to display the history a little bit. So the planetary dyna dynamics were developed in, the, um, in 2009 by a group, fantastic group of people out of the Stockholm um, Resilience Centre. And what they were trying to do was to sort of situate not just climate change, but what was happening with biodiversity and all the other concerns we had you know, acid rain was in the background, then there were nutrients flowing into the oceans and so on. So they came up with the idea that there was some outer boundary. I mean, it was articulated nicely, but, but a lot of holes appeared subsequently. But it doesn't matter because it set people off on a different thinking line. And that was to say, well, maybe there are some boundaries that we're transgressing that we really need to pay attention to. So, of course, climate change is one of them. But biospheric integrity, you know, how's the biosphere working? In the freshwater, in the, on the land, in the ocean, really critical. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're having all these outflows of nitrogen and phosphorus from our, from our farms, from our farming land. So, of course, green is the safe, what they call the safe operating space. And then by the time you're out here, it's, it's not really very good at all. So, not, not good, not good. Now, interestingly, climate back then was sort of down here. It's not anymore. Of course it's not, it's sort of out here. But what has happened in the meantime, finally, people have begun to understand that they are all interconnected. So this diagram in the middle is just simply to tell you that everything is interconnected. Now, we know that, but there are some things that need to be reconnected in our thinking. And if you're a farmer, and I talk to a lot of farmers, they've finally understood that actually... If it's possible to get away from putting industrial chemical fertilizers on their land, not only does it reduce the cost, but it's likely these days to actually avoid runoff and also to generate a very different kind of soil microbiome. And that is vital, we understand now, for the health of not only the soil, but the food that we eat. So it's all beginning to click back in. But of course, there are some farmers who never stop doing that. And so they're, they're kind of, now they're the top of the totem pole, and others are coming under different titles, you know, regenerative, organic, all these different phrases. But it is a joy to talk to them, I have to tell you. People rediscovering their land and realising that maybe in just the space of five to six years, they can recover land to a position that it was in maybe 40, 50, 60 years ago. This is a quiet revolution that's going on in Australia, in Brazil, in many places. So farmers are kind of rediscovering, oh, actually, we can rebuild our soils. And this is great. So all over, little things are happening, right? And when I talk to them, they're talking about this natural prosperity philosophy. They're not talking about GDP because, as they say, in the old version, we get paid for our yield. In the new version, we want to be paid for all that effort we've been putting in. So we want a morally stable system that actually reflects our living share, the effort that we have put in to keep this land and to bring this land back up into a productive state. Well, interestingly, the, the, the 
the banking community, the financial community, are listening. And I can see right now all kinds of different financial instruments emerging to respond to this, where you're actually going to pay people for the effort, not just payment for ecosystem services, payment for effort on the basis of an outcome that can be independently evaluated. So, so really, you know, things are moving. When farmers move, things really move, I can tell you that much. So the idea of the planetary boundaries is out there. A lot of measurement has gone on. And this is what I'm saying about having the, the frugal abundance kind of connected. So we've got the local abundance. We're growing enough food. We've got shelter. We have energy. We have clean water. We have clean air. We can pretty much achieve what we want to. But globally, somebody's keeping a track and making sure it all adds up. That's really the point about the kind of global frugality. It's about constraining ourselves that we're only going to live on one planet, not the 1.7 that we're currently, currently using. So planetary boundaries gives us that framework. Um, what I wanted to say with this uh, picture is that we can actually change a, a lot of things. So part of, the, um, part of the planetary boundaries is about air and air quality and so on. And what I, what I was thinking about was when we saw that vertiginous downturn in the economy at the beginning, you know, it was all lockdown, economy shuts down. These two pictures show you the difference between the February 2020 and the May 2020. And this is pollution as detected from satellites. I mean, it's a stunning picture. Of course, unfortunately, it's all starting to come back. But nevertheless, we can do this, right? Now, very unpleasant. We don't want to do that for too often. So is there a way that we can get to kind of this or somewhere in between these two and ultimately get to this and still have our economies running? That, this, is, this is where we're aiming for, but not everybody locked in their houses. So, so we, we kind of know what it looks like. We smell what it, we can smell it. We can sense it. We went out on the streets. We realized it was clean air, okay? Now, ironically, of course, you've got people walking around in masks, you know, stay home. So this is the paradox. And of course, it concatenated with what happened with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter. And this has given a very powerful movement to addressing air quality, which is why there are other conversations that are moving along around taking us from fossil fuel and you know, the, car, the, the um, combustion engine towards energy that is provided through renewable energy, electricity, and vehicles. Now, of course, long way to go in this country, but I can tell you other countries are moving very, very quickly. We've even got e-Ubers e in Nairobi. You know, so things are moving. It just, just takes a little bit of time and organization. And what is really good is that once you start to get clean air, people start to see other things. So in interviews in London and in several um, of the capital cities around the world, at this moment, and then subsequently through 2020, people were interviewed about what it was like to go walking for their one hour or however long they were given to go and walk. Literally, I mean, I think it was almost a sort of 98% rated that clean air, they'd never experienced clean air before, and having experienced it, they didn't ever want to go back to that. Now, of course, it wasn't strong enough to stop it, but already there's a lot more, um, I say, activism and people moving on the ground to change things. And so I come back to this being part of nature, being out in nature. You know, a 30-minute walk can boost your immune system, can help you, you know, reduce your cortisol levels and so on. These are tangible, there's tangible evidence that this is what happens when you go walking in nature. You know, 20 minutes in nature improves concentration with children, for example, who have got ADHD and ADD. So, and the other thing is it's like exercising your muscles. Once you do it and you enjoy it, you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. So the next piece I want to look at very quickly is the calculus of consumption and production. And yes, of course, we're going to talk about GDP, no doubt about it. But I don't want to spend too long tonight on that because, you know, we, we can spend a long, long time talking about that. What I want to say, though, is that um, this parameter space has really got the core of everything that we've measured in the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And it's about you know, the production, the yields, it's, it's all of that. But if you look at the, the invisible cost, we've always talked about the, you know, all the externalities are not there. There's a lot of economic jargon around all of this. But to really prosper, it means that this consumption production model that we've got ourselves into doesn't mean that you get wealth plus 
well-being if you, if you look at prosperity. That, that's not the answer. And in fact, what we, what we really have to do is not necessarily talk about degrowth and all these negatives. What we have to really think about is challenging our social and cultural values. And, and I say that because if we stand back and look at how many of us are living, we really do have an addiction. And that addiction is not necessarily about you know, the things we get addicted to, like drugs and so on, but it's an addiction to the way that we generate wealth and how we view wealth. And that has huge consequences for, um, for consumption and production because it's all about our social values. So, you know, I work hard, you know, and I'm at the top of the, I'm at the, top of the pyramid. You know, I earn that respect. Hierarchy is good for me. But everyone deserves some kind of respect, actually, all right? And, you know, I've earned my security. No, but everyone deserves security. So I'm going to set aside my nest egg. I'm going to keep this piece of land so I can give it to my children. Yeah, but what about the people that could use the land in the meantime? Couldn't we have a community setting in which that land can be used dynamically, put things back in? So hierarchy creates an addiction to reserving and preserving and taking things out of the economy, you know, savings and so on. So, yes, of course, we all want to feel secure, we want to have a pension and so on and so forth. But there are ways of doing it which are much more likely to engender respect for everyone and security for everyone. So I'll spend a little bit of time in another lecture on that. But it is an incredibly difficult um, thing to address because these addictions are really formative, they're fundamental, and they're established during adolescence and early adulthood. And, and that means that they're hardwired. And so in a way, we've got to sort of undo a lot of that wiring. But of course, we have to deal with lots of young people, so maybe we get in, you know, get in even earlier. And what a lot of researchers call this is sort of motivated cognition. So essentially, we have to tweak and work on that motivated cognition because these are the beliefs that determine and reflect your own individual setting and society's responses to you in how your kinship groups are set up and the social hierarchies and so on. Now, young people are quite different in many cases today. I notice that they, they form different kinds of structures and different communities, and they move around. They're not quite so you know, stuck in the hierarchy. Um, but I look again at some of the traditional groups, and although it looks from the outside to be very, very strict, there's huge flexibility. And where you sit and where you come into the hierarchy, for example, in the Maasai, is all based on your behavior. It's all based on how good you are to everybody else. And if you do not protect the others in the village, if you do not take care of the community, you know, you're basically put down at the bottom. That's it. You know, you didn't do your bit. You know, and, and you can be expelled as well, which is not a very good idea because there are lions out there that will eat you. So it's quite a, quite a desperate situation. You don't want to be like that. But, but it's, a, it's a setting in which people are looking at you. They give you endless, endless sort of um, opportunities to, to make a mistake and then they apologize. And, uh, and it's a continuous process of, I forgive you, I forgive you, come back, I forgive you, you know, all of that. So everyone gets you know, multiple chances. But the difference is that they take that sense of um, community very seriously. So even a young person can play a very important role if they do something. And, and that's what we've lost. Our hierarchies are still very bound with you can only do certain things when you've done 10 years of experience. I mean, you read every job interview or every job description. It's like, please don't bother applying for this unless you've got 15 years in this particular, particular job. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's a non-starter, isn't it, really, if we want to get a whole kind of way of thinking to change. So the, these sort of fundamental beliefs are all linked to the preservation of these addictions, of the hierarchy and of the accumulation, right? So it'd be under no... I'm not saying we're going to do, you know, break everything down, but there is a sense in which we have to be a bit more, um, a bit more assertive. So, of course, you know, GDP, this is the picture of GDP for me, rapacious use of resources with no kind of recognition of what it looks like in the long term. And we, we sort of want to get to here, this nice bubbly, nice picture, happy picture. But it's a picture of, I would say, the circular economy thinking, the idea that we can abandon some of this way of moving ahead, of accumulating wealth, 
by literally building up reserves, creating, you know, back rooms of special materials and so on and so forth, and creating cartels around them to control the price and so on, but effectively trying to even that out. So we have to abandon some of the standard economic approaches and we have to really think about nature isn't something abstract, it's actually real. And this is where, of course, we come to the idea that one size won't fit everyone. There will be differences and there will be contexts in, we, in which we need to operate. So this comes to the heart of the last part, which is about distributional fairness and equity. I never thought I would ever hear myself giving any thought to it, simply because I didn't feel trained, but I've read and read and read about this because my two colleagues, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, wrote a book called The Spirit Level, and it was a real wake-up call for me because it's full of statistics. Literally, you know, every other page is a graph. But what they're saying is that the fundamental health of all of us, and I mean mental health, but also physical health and disease, originates from where we sit in our society on the scale of equity and inequity. You know, the more unequal society is, you know, you might as well sign into the local hospital, frankly, because your likelihood of having a nice, healthy life is diminished. And it's not just me saying it. This is, you know, all of the major studies continue to come back with this. So what can we do with that? Because that's, that's kind of, that's really very, very deep, and, and, we, and yet all we see, particularly through COVID, is this increasing inequity. And this is a picture taken outside when people didn't know they were having their photograph taken. None of them look very happy, do they? Well, maybe this lady a little bit, but, you know, all pretty grim, really. And, and yet, this is the picture that people put on their social media. This is the image that people want to convey to you, that it's all great and we're all happy. So if you catch people unawares, they're looking pretty grim and pretty stressed. And they're looking pretty stressed, usually because there's a lot of inequity going on in their lives. And that inequity is leading to, as I say, a whole, a whole um, sort of raft of mental health issues and so forth. So we have to do something about this. We really do have to sort of change the way we make, in which we are making policies and direct <coughs> ourselves at how to come back to this issue of inequity. So that is directly linked to those addictions. That is directly linked to how we see resources. That is directly linked to the conversation we're going to have with nature. So, you know, we, I want to create larger lives for ordinary people. This idea that, you know, does it feel right? You know for yourself that if it feels wrong, you probably won't do it. You know, does it, does it make sense? We all think we're very rational, and we actually post-rationalise a lot of decisions that we make. But it has to kind of make sense. Does it fit into my day? Well, this is a very developed world picture. You know, if I can't quite fit it into my schedule, I'm very unlikely to make the change. And then question, can I do it? Do I have the skills? So, you know, in providing a new philosophy of how, we want to, how, how I think we could live, we actually have to put it down to people's individual sense of, is it the right thing to do? Can I do it? Am I skilled enough to do it? Do I want to do it? Does it make sense? And can I fit it into my life? So there's all kinds of, you know, other things that we have to consider when, we, when we're trying to change the world. Now, there's lots of books out there, but one I love is obviously Tim Jackson's. You see, prosperity without growth is, is displaying towards the economists what we're talking about. But Lorenzo, who's a, a, a really amazing Italian politician, has really hit the hearts because, he, in fact, the Pope really, really liked this because he was talking about the world after GDP, but it's written like a classic Italian. You know, it's full of lots of emotion and how we're going to go out and how we're going to get our bread and our pizzas and all of this. So it's been translated and it is a really lovely, lovely, lovely book. So definitely worth you looking at. Because what they are doing um, is trying to say, well, how can we change the economic system? What can we do? We need a sort of collective well-being and that means quality of life. But we need to change the institutions, we need to change the business practices, we need to change the way we do our politics. So reorientating goals, changing expectations, this is the kind of thing that we now, I'm going to spend some time on in the next lectures, you know, going into the detail of what it would look like if we really achieved it. And I've got lots of stories about people who are doing it, which is, I hope, going to be inspirational. We're going to look at design principles 
You know, we want to be goal-orientated, but that goal should not be a few people collect a lot of money in their banks. No, it's got to be well-being for everybody. We're going to be talking about context. You know, London is not the same as New York. I'm sure that if you talk to a lot of Londoners, they don't think they're the same as New Yorkers. But, you know, we somehow make a statement, all big cities are going to be doing things in the same way. Well, they're not. But rurally, absolutely, there are big differences. Strengths-based, recognise the strengths. This is absolutely critical. Communities have real strengths. That's what we need to bring and harness into the whole development of what are the local aspirations. So I'm part of a group, Essex Renewal, Essex Climate Commission and so on. One third of Essex, of that county, is going to become part of a climate focus area where literally there's going to be a renewal with farmers, with local people, and, and so on. And we've just been, I mean, it's very exciting. People are investing, it's becoming attractive, and so on. We're even going to re-roof all the, all the churches with solar panel slates. It's amazing, really. But it's because they got excited that they could actually do something that others might be interested in. And everyone brings their strengths to the table. Obviously participatory, obviously holistic, we want evidence. We want to be able to show others what, what we're doing, right? So that calculus, there's numbers all sitting behind that. And we want to do some experiments, and things are going to fail, but that's the only way we're going to find out what's possible. So, you know, we, we're, we're destined to fail, definitely. And why are we destined to fail? Well, because this is a pretty, pretty steep curve that we're going to have to do. This is what we are aiming to do in terms of carbon dioxide emissions. You know, turn that curve that way. Well... Literally, we're going to have to do this, decarbonize, but naturally. We're going to have to rethink the whole planet. So if I'm in charge of, let's say, a peatland, you know, I've got my work cut out for me. So everybody's got a job here. Literally, this is the make-work program for the planet. Um, but everyone will benefit globally and certainly locally. Um, we need to regenerate our agriculture. Did anyone see the earth shot? on Sunday. Did you see the amazing story about the lady who's doing forest gardening with palm oil? Brilliant idea. So we don't need to have this. What she's doing is she's putting the palm oil back in the forest and then growing things around it. So she's now, with Chester of all places, has created the first city that's selling non-deforested palm oil. I mean, wow, that's incredible. I didn't even know there was this product. So, so, you know, people are really inspirational. Great idea. Um, we have to depollute our environment. I've just finished the plastics report, the global plastics report. Enough said. It's a disaster. But we'll never get all the plastics out of the ocean. I'm sorry. We won't. And it's, you know, a lot of it is 50 years old and it's still floating around out there in the gyres. So, but let's not put any more in the ocean. Okay, so there's, there's things to be done. We have to protect our ecosystems, so we have to feel, we have to have that conversation with ecosystems so that we feel like going out there and protecting them and conserving them, because this is no good. And it's no good for the president of Brazil to say, pay me millions of dollars so I can go out and protect it. He's not believable. Go to the people locally, maybe. And then we need green strategies. We need to manage our land in a way which is going to take us into a, you know, a much, much more comprehensive, locally diverse and, and abundant setting. So in the end, all of these stories I'll, I'll be you know, talking a lot more about, but it is about people, planet and prosperity, the three Ps. And you know, this is a, a particular landscape, but everywhere you go, there's the conversation. And these little children here, they're having a conversation. They're having their conversation with nature. And I guarantee you that when, they, when any child comes back from an experience like that in nature, they've probably had a conversation with lots of animals that maybe, we, maybe they're real or not, but they've had the conversations. And that's what we need to recapture. We need to recapture that wonder, that enchantment, so that we can go out and actually have our own conversation with the planet and still make a living for ourselves, but use nature in the sense, and I'm using that carefully, use nature to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. So that's my new philosophy. <laughs> I don't know whether it's believable, but I'm very happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. The first one online um, we've got is about the seasons shifting by six weeks in mm -hmm. Kenya. Mm -hmm. um, this sounds like a lot. Is this similar in other countries and what kind of implications does this have? Uh, yes, I think sub-Saharan Africa more generally or East Africa is experiencing quite a lot of shifts. 
but the more damaging fact is that there are periods when... So the crops aren't essentially matched, whereas the pastoralists can move their animals around, it's very difficult to move the crops around. So, so there will be some adjustments, there's no doubt, and it's happening across certainly Eastern Africa and that part of Sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you. Can we take some questions from the room? Does anyone have one? I, two questions. First of all, the about, about the, the word cloud, about prosperity. Who was the group who participated? It's just that you're going to get different answers from different people. And secondly, your, your aim to do this, this, yeah, but given that the people who make the decisions about economy are not quite likely to agree with all, given that they basically decide how much money there is, then do we have enough time to achieve this? Right, I'm going to answer the second one first, because it's very important, very important. If you'd asked me that question a year ago, I would have said, mm, probably not. But I was fortunate enough to be given some money from a philanthropist and some investors to develop a new data platform, which talks about the health of the planet, literally down to 10 metre resolution. And out of the woodwork, literally out of the woodwork, have come the most extraordinary range of investors, companies, literally saying, hmm, well, if you can actually see what we're doing at 10 metre resolution, hmm, well, we can't hide it anymore. So they have literally turned the corner. Now, you and I probably both know that governments go where money goes. I'm sorry to say it, but that's the, that's the deal here. So... I am pretty convinced that in the next two or three years, with these kinds of discussions that are going on, but consumers are critical because what drives most of them into the room is they're worried about their, their clients. They're worried about consumers. All the food companies, they are absolutely clear that they now need to show where the food is being grown, who is growing it, and, and what are the conditions under which it's being grown. There isn't a single big food company that isn't doing that. So I can see things beginning to start to rearrange. And these are people who, even three or four years ago, I would never have dreamed would even think of that conversation. So it's up to us to become very vigilant. That's really the point. And on the prosperity, it's actually my own uh, group at UCL, in the Institute for Global Prosperity. And we do a lot of work. I mean, I sit in Kenya. We have people all over the world. And we work with local communities actually asking these questions, but helping communities to express themselves as to what does prosperity mean for you. Yeah. Okay. Professor McGlade, may I take one more question yes, from online and then we yeah. can go back to the audience again. Sure. Um, so the, another question I've got here is, is it likely that implementing some of these changes, like paying for effort into developing countries before they're fully industrialised is a possibility, or is industrialisation to the Western standards still desired? For me, no. I'm absolutely clear that this particular way of the, or the financial instruments that are emerging, the mutuals and that, are fit for purpose to go to developing countries. I don't even like using the word developing countries. Countries that are not on this other trajectory. So Kenya and these other countries are fit and ready to take on mutuals and different kind of financial instruments. And they're very sophisticated. You know, M-Pesa and all these other things. It's all running quite nicely. So, yeah. Could we take another one from the room? Um, hi. Uh, so my question is actually a little similar to the previous gentleman's. Um, so I, I work with, uh, I'm a mergers and acquisitions lawyer and work with a lot of funds, which is an industry that's uh, pretty much obsessed with growth. And I guess my question is, how do you convince people for whom, you know, all of their um, income comes from essentially just pure growth that... Um, they can embrace, you know, a world where there's prosperity without growth, quote-unquote. Well, I didn't say there's no growth, but it's growth of a different kind. <coughs> it's growth which is driven by a full understanding of the consequences of the resources that you're using. So, you know, I, I've got no problem with growth per se, but it's how it's achieved, and it's who suffers on the way to achieving it, and who accumulates all of the wealth at the end of the day. And I think that's really the, the, the most honest answer I can give you. I would never, for an instant, stop those farmers who I work with in Kenya growing, having economic growth. They need it, you know. They have, like, $5 a month. 
I mean, frankly, it's amazing that we can get through to the end of the month every month with 100,000 people. I mean, it's just... So there's a lot of room for growth, but it hasn't to be done at the detriment of the environment. And this is why I have great satisfaction seeing how local populations, albeit with very little money, can actually increase their livelihoods, their revenues, but at the same time improve the local environment. So they're finding ways to do exactly that. And these are the people who we need to invest in. Definitely. Thank you so much, Professor McGlade. I'm sorry to call time on tonight, but I'm afraid we've run over now. But um, could I just uh, call everyone's uh, attention to the next lecture in Professor McGlade's series, um, Nature's Numbers, Natural Capital Accounting, on the 16th of November. Please do um, book in for that. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Atiyah. Thanks very much.